All right. We're at you snooze, you lose o'clock. So we, we're going to start this morning and, uh, and hopefully make our way through a whole lot of material this morning. If you just uh, got in here, I would encourage you to pick up one of the handouts in the back. It'll just help you sort of follow along with tons of scriptures and tons of quotes this morning. So um, I threw them all in a doc, and I'll try to point out for you whenever I am reading a quote or a scripture. That way it'll um, it'd be a little bit easier to follow along. So um, let me pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. God, thanks for a chance to... Uh, learn about how to train our hearts for godliness, to train our hearts to look like Jesus as we journey with Jesus, um, and even to talk a little bit about how we can help our kids uh, learn to love and treasure Jesus uh, even more. Help us in this endeavor this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So, as you know, we're focusing our attention this morning on something called family worship, and I bet I know your reaction when you hear those two words together, family worship. Humiliation, frustration maybe. For some of us, it's a super cringe moment to think about family worship. We are all well aware that either we don't practice this now like we should, or we didn't practice it like we should have when we had children in the home. But I don't think this needs to be our reaction this morning. Family worship is not something that is meant to be God's torturing mechanism for our souls for our consciences. Rather, it's a means of grace. Uh, it's a habit of grace, we might say, as we've been walking through several different habits of grace for the last few weeks. It's a gift. It's not a box we have to check. It's not a marriage badge we have to earn. It's a gift with many blessings. And so I want to talk about this gift from six different perspectives this morning. The need, the target, the call, the history, the functionality, and the elements of family worship. Lots of perspectives and lots of ground to cover. So let's let's Look at this need for family worship. How will our kids learn Jesus without our telling them? It's a simple question with a simple answer. The psalmist knew that the most natural delivery of God's truth to our kids' ears was through parents' lips. Maybe that's a duh thing for you, um, but something that we need to remind ourselves of, I think. And a real quick caveat before we read the words of the psalmist. Um, while the applications today will be directed primarily at parents, uh, they aren't the only ones who need to hear this. Uh, even if uh, you're single or you're newly married and don't have children yet, uh, we can all benefit from this discussion. And I do want to acknowledge that I know some of you are just really aching for children and God has not given you children yet. Probably most of us here, um, th there are more of us like that in the church than most of us realize. Um, it's a really challenging season for for a lot of us. Um, you're begging God, and he just he hasn't seen fit to give you kids yet. Our hearts want that for you, too. Uh, I hope today isn't too painful for you. We love you, and I, for one, am praying for you. But here's what the psalmist says was the best and most natural way to deliver God's truth to kids' hearts. Psalm 78, this is in your little packet there, your staplest packet, I might add. Um, he says this, Give ear, O people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Things that we have heard and known, here it is, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done, which he commanded our fathers, here it is, to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And here it is, arise and tell them to their children. 
gulp. Like, that is a big, big responsibility that God has given to us there. Maybe you're feeling the pinch of not doing this adequately or regularly like I am. But what this tells us is that family, and if possible, father-led worship, is God's way of penetrating a dark world with his amazing light. Family, and if possible, father-led worship is God's way of penetrating this dark world with amazing light. This sounds wonderful, but it's not reality for many of us. Don Whitney, who is a man who has written extensively and winsomely about family worship, said this recently. This is on your sheet as well. He says, after nearly a half a century in ministry, including preaching in 47 states, it is my observation that few Christian homes practice regular family worship. I would even venture to say that in most of our best churches, most of our best men do not lead their wives and children if they have them in family worship. Having your family in a good Bible teaching local church is crucial to a Christian marriage and parenting, but it is unlikely that church attendance alone will impress your children with the greatness and glory of God such that they will want to pursue him once they leave the home. Our kids notice when our worship is only a once a week activity for an hour and a half on a Sunday. And it's just a thing that we do rather than who we are. But all throughout his word, God works powerfully in young lives whose souls are being warmed by the fires of rhythmic family worship. Missionary John Patton, he lived in the 1800s, early 1900s. He served in the South Pacific. He wrote about the profound impact family worship left on his life, quote on your sheet. He says, when on his knees, speaking of his father, and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, our father poured out his whole soul with tears. We all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior when their daddy was praying and learn to know and love him as our divine friend. So parents, doesn't that fire you up just a little bit? Don't you want your kids to remember you in that way? Mm -hmm. As the friend of God who introduced you to God, who then became your friend too. The path to our kids remembering us like that is paved with the stones of regular, ordinary family worship. Family worship may just be the most important thing you do in this life. And I don't say that to burden you or to guilt you. I just want to inspire you towards something that is life-giving, joy-producing, soul-saving, this rhythm of family worship. Earlier this week, uh, I was reading that the commander of the Columbia shuttle, his name was Rick Husband, uh, you might remember that the Columbia shuttle was the one that disintegrated in midair uh, over Texas back in 2003. Well, Rick was so devoted to family worship that before he left on this mission, he recorded 18 videos of himself for his family, one uh, videos of family worship, one for each day that he was supposed to be gone on the mission. How valuable do you think those videos are to his family now? What a legacy he left. Well, moms, dads, husbands, wives, family worship is needed. You know, one of the way, ways we talk about this for our community groups um, is, is this. Sundays are essential, this is on your sheet. Sundays are essential, but they are not sufficient. If we want to follow Jesus faithfully and last until the end of our race with Jesus, we're going to need more than just Sundays to do that. The same for us and for our kids in the home. Sundays are essential, got to be here faithfully, but they're not sufficient. We need to set aside regular times to be in the word with our spouse and or our kids or whoever is living under the same roof with us. That's the need for family worship. Here's the target. A few weeks ago, we were visiting friends. Most of you in here know them, the Rogers, Brandon and Beth, and we were in Texas. They have a few kids. They leave toys around like all kids do in the backyard. Made me feel better about our backyard. 
Um, so while I was walking through their backyard, I noticed this bow and arrow laying in the grass. Now, I literally had never shot one before. So I picked it up and gave it a whirl. Now, you need to know that their house uh, backs up to a schoolyard, a big school with a big play yard behind it, uh, right where the kids play. So if you're thinking carefully with me, you probably know how this story ends with me and a bow and arrow in the backyard next to a schoolyard. Um, here I'm thinking that I'm going to fire this arrow directly into the back fence, never once thinking that I was going to fire that bad boy over the back fence and into the school schoolyard, but that's exactly what I did. Um, thankfully, this story does not have a bloody ending. The arrows had rubber tips, and there were no kids playing at the time. But if it had been a real arrow, we would have had some real issues. But did you know that the Bible likens children to arrows? Psalm 127.4 on your sheet. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Arrows begin as unformed, knotty, rugged wood. Someone has to get a knife and whittle that bad boy down. The wood needs refining if it's going to fly straight and hit its target. Children are God's spiritual arrows in our spiritual quivers. They need the sanctifying truth of God's word so that their souls can soar toward the target of their life, being like Jesus, Romans 8, 28 and 29. So one of the reasons God gives us kids is to penetrate the darkness of this world with the truth of God's word with our lives, and then also through the lives of our children who will grow up to do the same. What a privilege to weaponize our kids, to weaponize them, to be forces for good and light. So the implication here is that there is both bow work to be done, bow work, and then arrow work to be done. To be done. If we are the bow and the kids are the arrows and God is the archer, then we need to spend time becoming fit bows so that the archer can use us to fire fit arrows into the world and light it up with the goodness of Jesus. So God has called parents specifically to whittle away at our children so that they become aerodynamic arrows in the hands of the Father. But sometimes we are tempted to outsource this whittling work, this arrow work. And I think this is a dangerous trap that many, especially maybe in modern day America, have fallen prey to. It's this. This is the trap. We tend to think that we can delegate the critical role of arrow whittling, or we might say discipleship. Uh, we think that we can delegate that to the hands of others, like a Sunday school teacher or a youth pastor or a pastor or a Christian school teacher. But this is not God's design. Not that there's anything wrong with those roles, but it's not who God has primarily tasked with doing this. Our kids need parents who love God and don't delegate this precious God-given responsibility, parents who are willing to turn off the TV and become the youth pastors of their children's lives. And I think the solution for this is something that we're calling family worship. God's solution is family worship. So my explicit goal today is to persuade you to adopt a routine of family worship in your home. Whether you have kids in your home or not, I want to persuade you to begin to adopt this pattern, this habit of grace. Family worship, here's the definition that I'm giving it on, there, on your sheet there. Gathering those living under the same roof to learn who God is and give him what he deserves through the rhythmic use of scripture, song, dun, 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 and prayer. Okay, there's the need for and the target of family worship. Here's the call to family worship. Can anyone think of anywhere in the scriptures besides Psalm 78 um, where God calls on parents to lead their families in family worship? Any thoughts on that? 
Yeah. Deuteronomy 6. Yep. If you look ahead, you can cheat and see. I should have I warned you not to look ahead. No, that's great. I wasn't calling you out at all. Yep. Yep, that's the first one. I put them there, so I'm just not going to, I'm not going to ask the question anymore, because I'm not saying you cheated either. I believe you. But I would argue that God calls us as parents, and especially us daddies, like good shepherds to lead their families into the green pastures of God's word. And the first hint begins in Genesis 18. God has just finished talking about the nations of the earth being blessed in Abraham, and now he says why the nations are going to be blessed and how. Uh, on your sheet, Genesis 18, 18, and 19, for I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How is Abraham going to do this? You can bet good money he wasn't leaving it to the local church because there wasn't any. The only way Abraham could have done this was to intentionally teach his children the way of the Lord. Years later, when Moses was on the world stage, the rhythms were still the same. Speaking through Moses, God clearly calls parents to regular investments into the hearts of their children which is what uh, Sue just recounted for us. Hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And how do you make that happen in the lives of your kids? Next words. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Some of us are probably familiar with Joshua's exhortation to the Israelites to remain faithful to God. He closes his little speech with this statement on your sheet. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that word serve there in the original Hebrew is often translated worship. How would Joshua and his family have served or worshiped the Lord? Especially how would they serve him or worship him when at least compared to our day, congregational worship was so infrequent. Regular family worship must have been the tool in the tool bag that was going to be used to make this happen. He wasn't waiting for Sunday to do this. Joshua wasn't. Uh, even later in the Old Testament, when the psalmists were on the scene, we find the same pattern. Here it's God's people worshiping in family tents. Look at Psalm 118.15. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. So throughout many of the psalms, including Psalm 78 that we started with this morning, um, we read of fathers being called to tell the next generation the praises of God. Fast forward all the way into the New Testament, and you'll find the same patterns. The faith of young Timothy blossomed, blossomed because of the rhythms of family worship. When you have blossom and rhythm in the same sentence, you're in trouble. Second um, Timothy 1, I thank God whom I serve, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. I am reminded, Paul says to Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. How did that dwell in Timothy? rhythmic investments from his mother and grandmother. Later, Paul encourages the parents in the Ephesian church, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How? I don't think it was by assuming that the Sunday school teachers were covering all of that ground. Of course not. This is an explicit command for parents and especially fathers to take up intentional responsibility for training their children. None of this happened unintentionally. It took fathers, in some case mothers and grandmothers, steadfastly committed to rooting the hearts of their children in the soil of the word. Intentional parental discipleship is an assumed norm throughout the entire scriptures. And now, for, for most of us in here, maybe for all of us, scriptures call alone ought to be persuasive enough, but there are compelling arguments, too, from church history. 
Um, so let's talk about the history of family worship. The first generations of Christians. Uh, Joel Beakey, who has studied this subject at length, describes how the early church pursued this habit of grace. He says this, At an early hour in the morning, the family was assembled, and a portion of the scripture was read from the Old Testament, which was followed by a hymn and prayer. In the evening before retiring to rest, the family again assembled. The same form of worship was observed. Or years later, uh, think of Martin Luther. Martin said, Martin and I are on, on first name basis, so <laughs> Marty said, even with all of his responsibilities as a professor and a church leader, as a husband and a father, he had the responsibility to be the worship-leading pastor of his family, and that his house was actually a school and a church. Or think about the confessions, the historical confessions. In this case, the London and Westminster confessions contain this phrase, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily, and in secret each one by himself. Or there's the Puritans. The Puritans saw family worship as so foundational, get this, that they would keep a man from communion if he repeatedly failed to lead his family in worship. But what if you're not Luther? What if you're not the author of a Reformation, a household name more than 500 years later? Family worship is something that we can all engage in. If you have a doctorate in theological education or if you've never finished high school. George Whitfield uh, was an American missionary. He's really helpful here. Uh, he said this about the practice of family worship. He says, where the heart is rightly disposed, it doth not demand any uncommon abilities to discharge family worship in a decent and edifying manner. If you guys grab one of those handouts at the back, it'll, help, it'll be helpful for you. Um, so it doesn't take a genius to make this happen, just a, just a faithful just a faithful follower of Jesus. Robert Murray Machane. Is there anyone here familiar, heard that name before? I just discovered this week that it's not Mick Shane, but it's Mish, Mishane. Um, there's no Mick there. Anyway, that's free of charge. Robert Murray Machane. He was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. He's probably most um, popular or famous for his Through the Bible in a Year plan. Millions of people still use even hundreds of years later, the plan that he created. But a less-known fact about Machane was that he was single for his whole life, yet he still practiced rhythmic family worship, often with his sister who lived with him. And he wrote prolifically about its value. For example, in a message entitled Family Government, Machane explained that family worship, is on your sheet, is more needful than your daily food, more needful than your work. On another Sunday, he told his church, you may not know that an elder who does not keep worship in his family may be suspended from that office. Oof, that's heavy. But let me lighten your load just a little bit. In a few minutes, I'm going to make some specific, maybe more practical suggestions. But I want to encourage you not to take any of my suggestions as law. Every family has different schedules and abilities and makeups. Turning these suggestions into demands will suck the life out of you. McShane, while... There, I did it again. Miss Shane, while dead serious about family worship's necessity, he's no stranger to the challenge. He says, if this be the case, in other words, if what you're doing isn't working well, throw aside the fetter and feed at liberty in the sweet garden of God. My desire is not to cast a snare upon you, but to be a helper of your joy. So as we get more practical here in these final minutes, keep this in mind. For as many families as are represented here this morning and in our church at large, there will be that many different approaches to family worship. Younger couples with no children, older with grown children, middle-aged with growing children, we all need this practice, but it will look differently for all of us. So let's talk about the elements of family worship. 
Here's what Matthew Henry said. You guys may have a commentary of Matthew Henry on your shelf. This is like the most popular American commentary, I think, Matthew Henry. Uh, he lived in Wales. He was a pastor in Wales in the 16 and 1700s, but he said this. They that pray in the family do well. They that pray and read in the scriptures do better. But they that pray and read and sing do best of all. So these are the three simple syllables that will help us remember the important and historical elements of family worship. Read, pray, sing. First read. This is the most critical piece. If it is the word that gives life and light, it is to the word we must run with our kids or with whoever is under our roof. So read a portion of the word together. You may consider reading some or all of a particular day's reading plan. If your children are able, involve the whole family in the reading. Or if it's just a couple, take turns reading aloud. Of course, if you have children, you'll want to explain difficult words and concepts, but don't worry too much if you can't explain everything to them. After reading the word together, work through a simple process of application. Answer questions like this for them. What is true about God in this text? How do we respond to what is true? Do we need to repent in light of what we've read? What is life-giving about this text? How does it remind us of our need for the cross? And if those kinds of questions intimidate you, often Bibles will they'll include questions for you that are maybe more age-appropriate. So we've done this recently with our kids. Um, and they always have a question at the end of each chapter, as it were. Can you think of a time when you needed help? And then it gives an answer that you can help talk your kids through. So often, Bibles will have, at the end of each story or section, they'll have a part um, where you can, they'll tip you off with some questions that you can ask. So, um, but let me just encourage you, don't underestimate your kids. I heard one guy say, pack it in now, they can unpack it later, right? Pack it in now, they can unpack it later. And I do want to say this, not all children's Bibles are created equal. There are a lot of options out there that are not worth your time or money. Eden brought a book to me the other day. Eden is my uh, almost 11-year-old. It told the story of Noah, and she was reading it to her sisters, and she was like, Daddy, this book about Noah doesn't even include God's name at all. First, I high-fived her for noticing that. <laughs> and then I picked that thing up and I threw it in our fire pit. That's not true. But I did, I did throw it away. <laughs> I don't know how that thing got into our house. If one of you gave it to us, well. Um, <laughs> this is not the first time that we've run across Bible stories that tried to moralize a Bible story to make my kids good. But that is deadly. The Bible is not fundamentally about how to make us good. It's to convince us that we aren't good and need God. That is the point of the Bible, and it ought to be the point of our children's Bibles. So not all Bible stories are created equal. Family worship is to be God-centered, not good-centered. Good is a byproduct of God, not a substitute for him. You can find a thousand books that will help your kids understand that lying is bad, that they should be good and tell the truth. Being a moral boy or girl tends to be the focus of these kinds of books. Not that they don't mention scripture or God sometimes, because they often do, and that's where this gets a little bit tricky. These sorts of devotionals tend to have morals as the main point, point of the story. Obviously, morals are good, but they're not enough. They don't save you. They don't save your kids. If your goal is merely to have good kids, you don't need family worship, because family worship is God-centered not good-centered. Family worship's design is to cultivate children with a growing love for Jesus and his gospel. 
And as this affection for the person of Jesus grows, moral living will be the obvious and natural consequence. So at that point, they won't be rejecting lying because their devotional told them not to. They'll be responding to the gospel of King Jesus, offering their lives as a living sacrifice because of his sacrifice. When you offer your life a living sacrifice to God, you don't lie. It's just a different and a tweak in motivation there. So the heart of family worship is hearing God's word through reading the Bible together. Focus on Bible stories if you have young children. As children get older, move to the Gospels and just read through them and the rest of the New Testament with the goal of eventually just reading through the whole Bible together with your kids. Let's read. Second, pray. Don't shortchange or underestimate the value of this time. One guest who visited Charles Spurgeon's home one evening and observed the family worship time with her twin boys said this, so powerful. One of the most helpful hours of my visits was the hour of family prayer. At 6 o'clock, all the household gathered into the study for worship. Usually, Mr. Spurgeon would himself lead the devotions. The portion read was invariably accompanied with exposition. How amazingly helpful those homely and gracious comments were. Then, how full of tender pleading, of serene confidence in God, of world-embracing sympathy were his prayers. His public prayers were an inspiration and a benediction. But his prayers with the family were to me were more wonderful still. Mr. Spurgeon, when bowed before God in family prayer, appeared a grander man even than when holding thousands spellbound by his oratory. Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. He was a very gifted speaker. He had a golden tongue. But for this person's experience, the best moments were just in that study alone with his children. It's powerful. So husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, pray together. And to avoid saying basically the same things every time, I'd recommend a simple practice of praying about at least one thing that you read in the Bible. Pray earnestly for your kid's salvation out loud in front of them. Ask your children what to pray for and bring those things in prayer. When your children know that you want to pray for them and want to know what their needs are, they'll come to you with their needs, and they'll come to you wanting to pray with you. Read, pray, sing. Some of you right now are like, yeah, right, you have not heard my golden pipes, or less than golden pipes. But hear these words, Colossians 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you don't know where to start, download Trinity's Sunday playlist from Spotify. If you can't sing well, just let the recording do the work and sing along. Or like my family, just sing without instruments or recordings. Singing together pumps the truths of the word deep into our hearts. It settles in our bones and protects our faith when we are faltering. So sing, sing together. One more category here. Let's call it if time permits. So beyond the essentials of read, pray, sing, there are some elements here that I think will enrich your experience with your family together. First, catechize. This is a question and answer method of teaching biblical truth. And it's been employed by the church since her early days. If you're unfamiliar with a good catechism in your own, in, in our church's tradition, and I can uh, highlight a couple to you, uh, ask your pastor for recommendations. Discover why, along with family worship, catechizing is being rediscovered as a valuable family discipleship tool. Also, memorize. Family worship is an ideal time to review your verses um, with your family and learning in other settings, like uh, maybe they're learning verses in church, or if you have your kids in Christian school, it's, it's school. Even if you just learn one verse a month, these 12 verses 
a year are more than most Christian families are learning together. Other reading. So if you have time available to you, you might start to read, read something else together. Um, after you read, pray, sing. Um, like my family just read uh, Pilgrim's Progress recently together, and it was a really great experience for us. Okay, uh, real quick, as we are closing today, let's talk about the functionality of family worship. Maybe this whole thing doesn't even seem feasible to you. With your schedule, you and your spouse, with the schedule that you and your spouse hold, there's just no time. It's just impractical. But I think if we value this thing, if we keep in mind the target of this thing, we won't too easily lay aside this thing. So really the question for you this morning is, what is non-negotiable to you? Let me give you a few ideas to make this a functional possibility for you and your family however large or small your family is and whatever your pace of life is. First, make a plan. Haphazard scripture reading rarely edifies over the long haul. Families should include a variety in their plans and adjust them over time. But following a regular scripture reading plan helps us read the Bible in a way that it was meant to be read as the cohesive story of God's redemptive work. As dads or moms, searching for the right tool can be daunting. Don't be paralyzed by the options. Pick a good one and stick with it. If you want some suggestions, I've got a few for you here today. Um, I read this a few months ago, The TechWise Family. This isn't a family devotional thing, but this could help undergird some of the way that you think about how your family uses technology. This was dynamite. Uh, The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch, so very helpful. Um, Also, The Gospel Story Bible. I should also say that John is gonna be compiling a list of resources that have been used in each of the, uh, the mobilized classes, so about reading the word, or praying the word, or family worship in the home. We're going to have a whole sheet um, that is just com- you know, devoted to these resources, so you don't have to write all these down, or you can if you want. Um, we worked through this as a family a couple of years ago, the Gospel Story Bible, uh, a really helpful book there, maybe for like six-year-olds and up, probably, seven, For a little bit younger children, this is really helpful. Um, we're in a network of churches called Sojourn Network. Everybody got to rebrand and be cooler, so now we are a Harbor Network. But the guy in Har- one of the pastors in Harbor Network wrote this, and it's uh, a really helpful tool. Um, God made all of me. We live in some crazy times where uh, there's a lot of body confusion and gender confusion. Here's a book that has uh, helped our family work through some of these concepts. God Made All of Me, a book to help children protect their bodies. Um, It's not only about uh, body and gender confusion, but also about um, threats uh, in their lives, uh, people who would take advantage of them as children. So a helpful book there. Um, If you're familiar with systematic theology, it's when we take all of the truths of the Bible um, and try to sort through what the Bible says about God and justice, or what the Bible says about how to get to heaven, or what it says about heaven, or angels, or demons, or whatever. This is a little systematic theology, everything a child should know about God. Helpful book there, too. Um, this, if you want to understand, and this is helpful for adults, uh, much less children, the biggest story, this makes sense of the entire timeline of scripture in a very short uh, in a very short book. We, we read this through in one night together uh, as a family. A really helpful book. This is one of my favorites to take uh, my kids through. How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. So it's like beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Really helpful. Um, the Emblem of the Infinite King. 
just have a cool cover, that's all you need to know. Um, if you want to learn a little bit about the conscience, um, that little voice in your head written by Andy Nacelli, this book is so helpful in training your kids to know what, what that voice is inside of them that says this is good, this is bad, whatever. We've gone through this a number of times and it's been um, helpful. Um, this book is called uh, Indescribable, Louis Giglio. It's just a book about um, God and science. Science is a difficult topic today. If your kids are in public school, um, they might need some reforming from you um, for, for certain things. And so this has been a helpful book for that. And then um, for a little bit older kids, um, this this um, says a little bit about sex. Uh, I said it really fast there. Um, the story of me, ages three to five. Um, it just, it's a very slow on-ramp into teaching your kids about this kind of thing. Um, the story of me, and then you've got ages, there's another three to five, um, ages five to eight, and there's, there's another one that's like nine to, I don't know, nine to 11 or something. Um, but anyway, so I have an extra copy of that. So we'll make that a giveaway today, if you want. This is a, yeah, a slow on-ramp into teaching your kids uh, God's understanding of what sex is and what it's for. So, um, all right, so make a plan. Pick a time and stick to it. We are winding down here. Um, for some, it will be over a meal. For others, it will be before bedtime. We do ours in the morning right at breakfast. Just pick the time for your family that makes the most sense and when everyone is most likely to be engaged. Unless worship is coded into your family schedule, it's likely to be erased by the busyness of your family's schedule. And if I can say this bluntly and gently, if you can't find a regular time in your week for family worship, you need to adjust your schedule. Pick a time. Be flexible. Each family is different. Don't be afraid to try different options. Obviously, there's tons of options and tons more than this. You probably all have your own sets of ideas and options that would be good. Uh, there's no rule book here. Next, keep it simple. Don't overthink this. It's going to be, this is going to look really ordinary and mundane in your life. Sometimes you're going to finish reading a chapter in Luke, and your kid's going to comment on their favorite episode of My Little Pony. Like, that's, that's how disjointed some of these times are. It's very often unspectacular. But just as a nail requires a bunch of hammer strokes to penetrate into the wood, our hearts need the constant strokes of family worship to plunge these truths deep into our hearts. Just keep going and keep it simple. Keep it brief. Most families are tempted to think that their schedule or their circumstances are unique, at least when it comes to making family worship a priority. Where there's a desire for family worship, though, and some flexibility, there's almost always a way. So don't tell yourself the lie that you're unique and you just can't do it in this phase of life. The phase of life will never come if you don't make it a priority now. No one says it needs to be an hour. Just take 10 minutes. That's fine. If you spend 10 minutes every day for a year, you will have spent 61 hours in the Word with your family. That's some hammer pounding that truth briefly day after day after day. Keep it simple. Keep it brief. Keep at it. Most of us have become frustrated when our family worship dreams have been eclipsed by the reality of a hectic schedule. But don't give up. Family worship is, that, is like that great long friendship that has its bumps and bruises but is forged through regular, meaningful interaction. You'll get knocked down, but just get up again. Somebody wrote a song about that. I just want you to hear me this morning, though, 
and know that this is not a guilt trip. We may already feel an increasing burden on our souls about our performance in this area currently, or maybe almost in a past life when our children were young, but we must understand that there's no faking this. If we are to be faithful parents to lead our families in worship as God commands us to, we must have God's word so deeply pressed into our hearts that we can't help but talk about it every chance we get, especially with our kids, applying it to every aspect of our lives together. That's why I said earlier that we need bow work before we engage in arrow work. If God's love is not primary for us, how can it be for our kids who also have eternal souls? Paul Tripp said that we should be like sponges. When our children bump into us, they should get wet with God. So let's seek God's help to soak in his word this week on our own and then with our families so that in worshiping him, we can drench each other or drench our kids with God. Without regularity and intentionality, discipleship in our homes may actually be one of those things that we think is happening more than it actually is. So let's evaluate and tweak and change where we need to. So let me end with a question that I hope will stir you to action, not condemn you. What are your children becoming by the way that you are investing in them? What are your children becoming by the way that you are investing in them? I read some stats in a sermon a few weeks ago, you probably, you might remember this, um, that really put things in perspective for me and for my kids. There's a 0.0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There's a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. And the craziest of them all, there's a 100% certainty that your child will stand before Jesus. So what are your children becoming by the way that you are investing in them? Are grades or music or sports the be-all, end-all in your home, or is it Jesus? Let's not train our kids to be optimistic about a huge salary or a lucrative career. Let's train them to be optimistic about a loving Savior who was crushed, that they might be rescued. And this happens best in regular and committed times of family worship. And I just want to remind you, too, if you're feeling shame in these moments, remember that that Savior was also crushed for all the ways that you have failed and all the ways that I have failed in this, too. Um, he took your shame so that you don't have to feel and be under shame this morning. You have escaped the shame and the guilt, and you stand as perfect before the Father. Hang on to that hope if you're feeling especially down about this. The benefits of family worship are immeasurable because they are eternal. 10 to 20 minutes a day can bear everlasting dividends. So this is an investment that is worth making. Start today. Start today. All right, is there any... Is there anybody that has anything that they'd like to add or a question that they'd like to posit? We could take two or three minutes here. Yeah, Tom. We have a unique situation married to a woman that's not a Christian. Yeah. That's hard. That, that is hard. <laughs> is that a statement or a question? <laughs> a question. Yeah. I, I would just recommend and, or ask you to ask her if she'd just be willing to read the Bible with you for 10 minutes a day and just start in the Gospels. I know she's got that Jewish background, so maybe yeah. she'd just be willing to read through the Gospel of John with you. Just read a chapter a day and see what the Lord might do um, through his living, active, sword-like word. Um, yeah, and just that hammer, right? Banging that nail in a little bit each day. And just pray that the Lord would use that. That's a good question, though. Any other comments or questions? Yeah, Elizabeth. Uh, when, when I became a Christian, I took care of the kids. And since my husband was Jewish, mm -hmm. he was, since he 
Yeah, use your time when your kids are captive and they can't go anywhere while, while they're in the car, right? Or go on walks with them. I love that. That's really sweet. I remember when I was a kid, I think it's Psalm 117. It's like two verses. And my parents would say, go read a chapter of the Bible for your, you know, your devotions. So I would read Psalm 117 every day. And that'd be, that'd be done like that. So I am right there with your kids. Uh, maybe time for one or two more insights or questions. Front row seating outside is at stake, so and that's that's shaded seating, so I don't want to take too much time here. Awesome. I was supposed to come up with a game to make this competitive, and I didn't. So I have some giveaways here. Um, I've got two of these. Family worship. A lot of what I talked about today um, was from a guy named Don Whitney. He's written extensively and really helpful about this. This is just like a, an apologetic for family worship. Very helpful tool. If you want one of those, great. I already told you about this. If you want to pick up that, you can. Um, another book called Family Worship by um, Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. You've probably heard of Matt Chandler. Probably not Adam Griffin. Um, but it's called Leading Your Home Through Time, Moments, and Milestones. Helpful book here on family discipleship. And last, maybe the crown jewel. This is what our, this is what our family is working through right now for family worship. The Action Bible. I don't know if you guys have this have this or not, um, but we love this. Um, I, at first, I thought it was like scandalous um, to be reading a comic book about the Bible, but um, it's really it's really faithful and really helpful and really engaging um, to kids. So um, I, I've got no game. So just be loving to one another as you come up here. Um, these are all mine. Don't take these. But if you want a copy of one of those books. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Wonderful.